right, Dr. King, thanks so much for joining us for this little chat. Uh, it's uh, a pleasure to be with you. We're looking forward to understanding a little bit more about the Center for Tobacco Products and your vision for the future of tobacco. Before we get into the nitty gritty of policy and uh, the regulatory environment, uh, I think it's actually going to be important for the audience to know that you have a pretty interesting background. You've uh, been involved in a number of different federal agencies that have had um, a pretty important impact on the tobacco epidemic to date. Tell us a little bit about Brian King that doesn't show up on your CV. Who are you as a person? How did you get here? How did you get interested in tobacco? Those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So first, I'd like just uh, to start with thanking you all for the opportunity to chat today. Um, I've always valued um, the collaborations with Chess colleagues over the years and in previous roles. So I'm thrilled to be talking with you all today and, and hope to continue to engage with, with you uh, all moving forward in, in various capacities. Um, and, and to answer your question, in terms of, of my background, I've been in uh, tobacco prevention control for the better part of the, the past 20 years. Um, so I, I started shortly after my emergence from the womb, um, <laughs> and uh, I've uh, run the full spectrum. I actually got my start as a quitline counselor uh, for the New York State Smokers Quitline, um, where I was working individually um, with, with individuals who were uh, calling um, into the quitline on a regular basis. Um, and I also did a lot of formative um, research work um, during graduate school, um, collecting data um, in retail environments to inform various surveys around tobacco-related um, advertising and, and promotion. And, and it was at that time that I was contemplating whether to go into clinical uh, medicine or into uh, population-based public health. And so I, I followed a few clinicians, um, and it was that point that I really came to appreciate the importance of prevention. Um, and uh, I think it's Benjamin Franklin has said an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and it, it still holds true today. Um, and I realized that it's really a heck of a lot more effective um, to prevent something from happening, um, particularly at a, at a broad level, um, as opposed to attempting at individual levels to, to clean it up on the back end. And, and, and that said, um, I understood the power of, of public health policy at, at that point. Um, and I was fortunate that at the University of Buffalo, they had a very strong tobacco control program. And, and so it piqued my interest um, and I, I opted to do my graduate work there. Um, and upon completing that, I, I continued to um, understand really the, the profound importance of these population-based levers and the necessary platforms to affect change, um, particularly around um, broad-based policies. Um, a great example was smoke-free policies, um, where you can implement a policy that has immediate effects, whether it be impact on acute myocardial infarctions, um, but also economic effects um, in, in terms of, of, of the, the roles of these policies and the potential benefits. Um, and, and towards that end, I did seek um, opportunities where we could really um, scale up um, efforts around tobacco prevention and control to, to help um, uh, reduce um, the, the overwhelming burden of disease and death that's, that's caused by tobacco use nationally. And, and it was that time that I entered the Epidemic Intelligence Service at, at CDC. Um, I was assigned to the Office on Smoking and Health, um, and that is where I stayed uh, for the better part of, of a decade. Um, I served in various capacities, uh, most recently as the Deputy Director for Research Translation, um, where I led um, Surgeon General's reports on tobacco, um, including the landmark uh, Youth e-Cigarette Report in 2016, 
um, as well as the cessation report in, in 2020. Um, so I have worked across multiple administrations, a career civil servant um, to address um, tobacco-related disease and death. Um, I did take a brief hiatus um, around COVID. Um, during the pandemic, I served as the chief science officer for CDC's COVID-19 response and also the executive editor of MMWR. And, and then I, uh, I finally opted to, to come back to tobacco control in, in my current role. Um, but I, I think my learnings from working in the infectious disease paradigm and also um, at MMWR um, helped to reinforce that importance of not only building strong science um, to support regulations and policy, uh, but also to message that um, in a way that's going to be impactful and, and useful to folks. And so, you know, ultimately, I've, I've um, seen it all in terms of, of local, state, um, national related um, work, um, but also the full paradigm of, of science and policy and um, communications. And I think that's an important paradigm um, to ensure that we enhance the uh, effectiveness of, of the work we do to ensure that it's reaching the right people and that we're partnering with the right people to help accomplish our, our end goal of reducing tobacco-related disease and death. To say, you know, your, um, the description of your trajectory is inspirational, starting on the front lines, dealing with people who smoke and trying to understand their backstory, what kinds of things affect them, what they worry about, what the obstacles are to actually creating behavior change, and then over time, translating that into uh, a much more scientific approach to trying to understand how to uh, manage or impact uh, or the epidemic as a whole. I, I guess we'll take the whole COVID-19 thing as a reasonable distraction. But, uh, <laughs> but yes. uh, at this point now, you're back in the driver's seat and you're starting to think a little bit about how Center for Tobacco Products is going to implement policies um, uh, that are within your bailiwick uh, to be able to impact the epidemic further. Can you tell us a little bit about your vision for uh, the policy direction for CTP? Yeah, so I will say that in terms of the, the Center Tobacco Products vision, um, it's to make tobacco-related disease and death part of America's past and not our future. And I, I take that very seriously mm. um, as a, a public health scientist, um, which is, is unique to this role. My, my two predecessors um, were either um, clinicians or lawyers. Um, and mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm the first um, scientist to, to take the helm of the center. Um, I, I'm committed to ensuring um, that we do use the, the science to, to help um, reach um, key priority areas um, for the center. Um, that said, um, in terms of achieving our, our vision around reducing tobacco-related disease and death, um, there's several key areas that I intend to focus on. Um, one of those is, is product standards, um, and, and that includes um, some recently uh, proposed rules, um, such as prohibiting um, menthol cigarettes, um, mm. and also another proposed rule to prohibit uh, flavorings in cigars. Um, and we've also announced our intent to propose a rule around um, capping uh, the maximum amount of nicotine that be, can be included in cigarettes. And those types of product standards are really an important component of the toolbox that the center has um, to ensure that we can address areas um, that are driving um, the prominent use of, of tobacco product use, um, particularly those products um, that are resulting in the overwhelming burden of disease and death um, from tobacco use, which is combustible products. Um, in addition to, to product standards, um, application reviews is also critical. Uh, I, we have received uh, around the order of 6.7 million e-cigarette applications. Wow. Uh, manufacturers are, are required to submit applications for new products, um, and, and FDA has diligently worked through 99% of those applications, um, uh, but there's still more work to do, and we recently got authority over non-synthetic or non uh, 
non-tobacco nicotine or synthetic nicotine, um, uh, which is a new authority of ours that we're working to go through another million applications. So that's a, a second priority. Um, the third of priority is enforcement and compliance. Um, in addition to, to reviewing applications and, and authorizing tobacco products, we're also tasked with ensuring um, that we do um, enforce the law um, that, that Congress um, has afforded us authorities for. Um, and so we're committed to ensuring um, that we do um, hold those accountable as appropriate, including uh, manufacturers or, or retailers in a way that, that's legally defensible. And then a final priority area for me is, is public health education. Um, I do think that important that it's we continue um, to message the public around the risks related to tobacco products, particularly among young people. Um, there, there's no um, safe tobacco product, and we do know there's a continuum of risk of tobacco products, but bottom line is when it comes to kids, um, they should not be using any of these products. And towards that end, um, we've made great strides as a uh, center um, to educate um, the public and particularly kids about the risks of products, and including emerging um, tobacco products such as e-cigarettes. Um, so those are my, my four overarching programmatic um, priorities. Um, and I also have some underlying themes um, that I continue to reinforce throughout those. And that's a strong science, um, a robust communication and, and transparency, um, engagement with stakeholders and partners, and then also importantly, health equity, um, which I mm. think um, is an increasingly important area um, to which a lot of our work, including the impending product standards, um, are poised to address in a very meaningful way. It's great to hear about the, the way you think about your priorities as sort of policy oriented and what's what's feasible though, sort of what do we need to get done? And then also keeping in mind your themes, uh, what's the framework within which the work actually uh, proceeds? So that's really fantastic. I'm gonna bring us back to enforcement in just a second, but can you just take a minute to give the audience a thumbnail sketch on what the process looks like behind the curtain? If you're someone like me, you come up with an idea, what should be done next? And you really would love to have it done yesterday, you know? And, and I know that the public feels like these implementing these policies should happen uh, on, a, on a, a very uh, contracted timescale. But I know there's a process behind the curtain. Can you let us know what that looks like a little bit? Yeah, certainly. And I wish I had like the old schoolhouse rock um, cartoon, you know, how a, a bill becomes a law. It's, it's how, you know, a rule goes into effect at, at CTP. Um, and, and there's certainly uh, many, many people that go into um, the creation of, of uh, any uh, regulation that comes out of the Center for Tobacco Products. And it's also not just the, the work of, of the dedicated staff. We have over 1,200 staff in the Center for Tobacco Products alone, um, but we also engage external entities um, when it comes mm. to, to implementing regulations. And, and in terms of of the, the process that we use, it, it follows a, a continuum that, that, that takes time. Um, the, the first step is really to identify a need. And then that's where we look to the data and the science. And so when it comes to the recent product standards that we've proposed um, around menthol cigarettes, it's ensuring that we have a, a robust body of data um, that, that demonstrates um, the importance and, and need for these types of rules. Um, and of course, with the menthol um, cigarette proposed standard, there's been a long uh, preponderance of evidence um, demonstrating the effect of menthol, particularly for disproportionate populations. Um, and, and once we have um, sufficient data to identify that need, we then um, propose a rule um, or a regulation. And it takes time to, 
to um, uh, write that up um, and to ensure that we have a, a document that's um, a defensible um, and, and fully embedded um, in terms of the scientific rigor. And at that point, we then start engaging the public. Um, and there's a comment period. Um, it's normally um, 60 days, but it can also vary. Um, the recent menthol and flavored cigar um, our rule, uh, we extended the comment period uh, to uh, 90 days. Um, and that's the opportunity for members of the public, um, including the, the general public and, and researchers and clinicians to provide their input um, on um, what's been proposed. Um, and it's really um, uh, great to see people engaged. Um, we received over 250,000 comments um, from the, the last um, uh, round of the menthol cigarette and, and flavored cigar um, uh, proposed product standards. And I think that's a good thing. Um, we were actually trending on OMB. Um, I'm not sure, um, the Office of Management and Budget, I'm not sure if that's a good thing, um, but I, I will say that it, it shows that people are really interested um, and devoted in ensuring that their voice is heard. And so after we get those comments, um, we continue to review those comments. Um, and uh, we do review every single one of them, and that does take time as well. Um, and then we decide on next steps. Um, and it, it's possible that we end rulemaking there, um, or if we have um, new information that's provided during the, the comment period, we incorporate that into the rule. Um, and if it does proceed forward, um, the, the next step is a final rule. Um, and we release that um, uh, to the public. And again, there's an opportunity for comment on that. Um, and then we implement the rule. Um, so, so that said, um, there's several steps um, that have to occur. Um, and uh, one key tenet of it is ensuring that we're engaging stakeholders throughout that process and keeping them informed. Um, and so it, it definitely takes time, um, but it's important um, to make sure that we have vetted and considered all aspects uh, and implications, including um, any inadvertent um, benefits and, and, and risks um, that might not otherwise have been realized in the proposed rules. Um, and, and that's the, the purpose of that process. And, and so we're certainly committed to completing the process as quickly as possible. I um, mean, we continue to provide updates to folks um, on um, uh, the, the rulemaking as it continues. But I do like to remind people um, that we do have a process and it's in place for that reason. Um, but we're certainly working um, diligently as quickly as possible to make sure we move this rulemaking through. Um, and there's many moving at, at the simultaneous times. <laughs> um, we're, we're not necessarily um, focusing on any one uh, rule at any given time. And we do keep many moving at, at various um, uh, periods um, to ensure um, that we're best protecting public health um, and, and keeping our, our pulse on um, key areas where we can be most impactful. Sounds very much like the process that you use is designed to be thoughtful and fair and sort of have a forward looking to make sure that any decision that you do make is less likely to have unintended consequences. I'm just going to point out to the audience members at this at this point that 250,000 comments sounds like an awful lot, but that is actually a place in the process where the folks listening in right now can have their biggest impact is to make sure that their opinions are heard, their insights are garnered, and actually make it into that corpus of uh, of comments and opinions and thoughts that the CTP uses to move this process forward. Um, so uh, let's bring us back to enforcement. So you've gone through the process of creating a rule. The rule becomes a regulation. Um, the little guy on the steps of Congress sings his song. It's done. Now, how do you figure out whether or not people are following that rule? What, what, what are your enforcement mechanisms? How do you sort of test the real world to make sure it measures up to your, uh, to your goals? 
Yeah, so um, in addition to our other authorities, one of the important um, authorities that was afforded to us by Congress in the Tobacco Control Act back in 2009 um, was the ability um, to um, implement an enforcement and, and compliance strategies. Um, I, I will preface this by saying that FDA does not have independent litigation authority. Um, and so mm -hmm. we work in coordination with other departments in the U.S. government, um, including um, the U.S. Department of Justice um, in terms of, of taking um, any um, litigation. Um, but, but the Center for Tobacco Products does have the, the authority um, to monitor the marketplace um, for mm -hmm. compliance with the law and also taking um, key compliance and enforcement actions when they're necessary. Um, we do have a variety of tools um, that, that are at our disposable um, to address illegally marketed products. Um, and um, we have issued hundreds of warning letters um, to companies for selling millions of tobacco products um, without submitting applications um, or continuing to sell those products despite um, receiving a negative action um, from the agency. Um, typically, a first step, although it's not um, necessary um, for an enforcement action, um, is to issue a warning letter. Um, and that's to and the intent of that is to achieve voluntary compliance um, and uh, to pursue administrative remedies um, or enforcement actions as needed. Um, that can um, include um, a, a variety of, of different formats. Um, we can send warning letters to retailers, um, for uh, example, selling products to underage youth, um, but we can also um, issue them to manufacturers um, who are selling a product um, that has not received um, FDA authorization. Mm. Um, and the warning letters typically give the individual a prescribed amount of period of time. Um, normally it's two weeks um, to um, come back to FDA and tell us how they are going to correct that action um, for which they are being warned about. Um, we do know that a majority of people who are issued a warning letter act. And so it's not just a, a piece of paper. Um, it is um, effective um, at uh, having people um, stop doing um, the, the violative activity that they were engaged with and was the focus of the warning letter. Um, but if they do not take action, we have other um, actions that we can escalate. Um, that includes civil money penalties, um, no tobacco sale orders, and, and also in injunctions. Um, and so we do continue to monitor and ensure that violations are corrected. So after initial warning letter, um, we do continue to monitor for those individuals. Um, and as needed, um, we will escalate um, uh, based on the, the legal evidence. And, and as I noted before, the Department of Justice does represent the FDA in initiating mm -hmm. any judicial enforcement actions in court. Um, and so we certainly partner with them um, for beginning to end in terms of identifying what strategies are going to be most effective in terms of um, uh, a legal um, uh, recourse um, and ensuring um, that we have as strong an argument as possible and also that we're um, utilizing our resources and strategies in a way that will best um, impact public health, um, particularly um, addressing youth access and, and use issues. Um, so all that to say is there's a lot of moving parts um, at the Center for Tobacco Products and we continue to monitor um, the marketplace. We continue to authorize applications and review applications, but a key component one of our authorities is also to ensure um, that people um, do um, abide by the law. Um, and that's a critical component of our portfolio that we continue to do from a variety of angles, including among retailers and also manufacturers. So Dr. Ken, I just want to clarify though, your, all your enforcement efforts through the, with the, uh, in cooperation with the Department of Justice and otherwise are really uh, pointed at or geared towards making sure manufacturers and retailers abide by the regulations. They're not pointed at the consumer. Is that correct? Yes, that, that, that's correct. And that also includes um, recently proposed rulemaking as well. A, a good example of that is the, the menthol cigarette proposed standard, which there would, would not be any individual enforcement um, for possession or use of the product. Um, the, the focus of, of these policies on manufacturing, um, uh, marketing, and, and distribution okay. of, of the products. 
So when you think about um, tobacco products, we tend to chunk these ideas in our minds. We tend to think about cigarettes and then not cigarettes. Uh, but the truth is, is that particularly in the 21st century with the emergence of electronic nicotine delivery systems, um, there's a wide variation in the characteristics of these products. Um, the electronic cigarette story is pretty complicated. Um, and you can imagine that chest members are really sort of mostly concerned with the potential health impact of inhaling that aerosol. What's gonna happen to the lungs, to the pulmonary vasculature, all those sorts of concerns are really rolling around in our community at this point. Can you give us uh, an, a thumbnail update on where CTP stands in the process of kind of corralling uh, the, the variation among these products into something that is more manageable, more understandable in terms of the biologic effect and long-term risks? Yeah, so when it comes to the issue of, of the tobacco product landscape, it's, it's rapidly diversified um, over the years. Uh, and uh, that's included emerging um, non-combustible products. Um, the most notable um, that we've seen in terms of use are e-cigarettes um, in, in recent years. Um, but I will um, note that e-cigarettes were not the first novel product and they, they certainly won't be the last. We yeah. continue to see a rapid diversification. And I think it's a, a good reminder um, for the broader um, community, um, including clinicians, um, to be mindful of, of what products are out there on the market and, and what the inherent risks are, and, and particularly for, for young people. On um, that said, I do think it is important for us to consider um, the fact that there, there is no safe tobacco product, um, mm -hmm. but there is a continuum of risk when it comes mm -hmm. to these products. And, and as a general product class, e-cigarettes have markedly less um, uh, risk than a conventional cigarette. Um, on, on balance, a conventional cigarette has 7,000 chemicals and 70 carcinogens, and so a mm -hmm. fairly prominent standard. Um, but that said, I do think from a public health lens, it's important for us to consider um, the inherent risks of these products. I'm acknowledging that none of them are safe, um, but there is a variation in risk. Um, and an important distinction also is uh, when it comes to youth versus adults. Uh, and, and regardless of whether there is a continuum of risk, um, there, there's no redeeming aspects of any tobacco product among kids. Um, and, and, and that's an important component. I think a lot of times um, we see divisiveness um, in various communities around um, uh, various emerging products, including e-cigarettes. Um, but the bottom line is when it comes to kids, they shouldn't be using any of these products. Um, and when it comes to adults, um, it's important to consider the specific context. And so if an adult smoker were to transition completely from cigarettes to e-cigarettes, there would be a net benefit to that individual. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but a, a key uh, lever in terms of what the public health impact um, for people is going to be is whether those products are actually effective for cessation. Um, and in order to get a meaningful benefit from switching, um, you have to switch completely from a cigarette to e-cigarette if you're an adult, um, or you have to significantly reduce the amount you're smoking. And so that's a really Really important consideration when we're talking about the inherent risks and, and ultimately the long-term um, uh, benefit um, for a person is if they completely quit all forms of tobacco product use, um, including um, a nicotine exposure in the long term. Um, but it is possible that transitioning to a lower risk alternative um, could be an intermediary and a pathway um, to a, a tobacco-free future. Um, so that said, um, one um, guiding principle of, of Center for Tobacco Products is we don't um, approve tobacco products. We, we right. authorize them. 
Um, and part of that is reviewing the science and the applications related to these products. And so when it comes to e-cigarettes, as I noted earlier, we received a bolus of 6.7 million um, uh, product applications. Yeah. Um, and we have gone through 99% of those. People are like to focus on the 1%, but I like to revert back that we have done Herculean um, efforts in a, in a, over a period of time. And on balance, we also just got authority for synthetic nicotine um, uh, products. And so we got another million of those. And again, everyone wants everything yesterday. Um, but the minute I took this job, I calculated it out. Um, and if we would have processed those million applications in the time everyone wanted us to, it would have been 17,000 a day that we were working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It wasn't feasible, um, uh, but we are committed to doing it as quickly as possible. And we're now 95% through those. Um, but to the earlier point, it just takes time um, and we wanna make sure we do it right. Um, and particularly when it comes to these emerging products, there's a lot of them out there, um, particularly when it comes to e-cigarettes. And Congress has given us the authority to review those applications <clears throat> and we're committed to doing that um, and, and doing it in a systematic way, but also looking to the science. And if we do authorize an e-cigarette for sale in the US, it's because the science has shown that the net benefit for adult smokers outweighs um, the potential risks for youth. And, and that's a pretty high standard um, to achieve. And right now we've only authorized 23 um, e-cigarettes mm -hmm. out of, you know, over um, 6.5 million applications that have been processed. And so that reinforces the importance of making sure that we are um, adhering to the science whenever we're authorizing a product to enter the marketplace. Yeah. I, I giggled when uh, you mentioned that you don't approve electronic cigarettes, you authorize them. I, I think that word approval comes from the sort of background that um, members of this audience are kind of used to the, the drug approval sort of process, which I recognize is very different from what the, the process that CTP is taking and also is a very different goal altogether. Um, but along those same lines, when a drug is approved, there is a, there is a process in place for sort of post-marketing uh, monitoring to make sure that once the thing is is put out into the wild, into the community, that it continues to behave the way you expected it to behave in the beginning. Is there a similar sort of post-marketing uh, surveillance system set up with CTP to make sure that these products actually behave uh, in the wild the way you anticipated they would? Yeah, so you're absolutely right in terms of the varying standard that CTP has. And so the standard used for other centers at FDA is it's safe and effective. Right. Um, and, and that is not um, the, the standard that FDA um, uh, Center for Tobacco Products, ours is appropriate for the protection of public health, um, mm -hmm. is the um, approach um, afforded to us by Congress in the Tobacco Control Act. And so um, that is, is about as clear as mud, um, but um, it, it does um, allow the ability to look at individual science for a respective product. And again, to weigh that balance um, between, um, uh, you know, whether something um, is um, going to, to outweigh um, the potential risks of, of youth um, in terms of, of, of promoting um, the, the benefits of the, the products uh, among adults. Um, and so I certainly think that it's, it's, it's an important, um, uh, you know, component of, of the work that, that we do do. Um, in terms of um, the, the underlying um, purview of um, the, the work of the Center for Tobacco Products and, and looking at this, this standard and, and monitoring things over time, we certainly have that ability as well. And so when we do approve an e-cigarette, 
um, uh, what we do is um, issue that um, authorization um, uh, that, that um, goes forward. And there's certain parameters um, around um, what um, the, the applicant must do in terms of maintaining the product on the marketplace. And so normally the authorization is provided for a certain number of years um, after which we will reevaluate and the onus is on the applicant. Um, to provide that information. And so there's a variety of different authorizations that we do provide, whether um, it's a new tobacco product application. Sometimes we have a modified risk um, tobacco product applications um, where um, an applicant has requested to market their product as a lower risk alternative to conventional cigarettes. And as a result of all of those authorizations, when we do issue them, there's clear parameters um, where the onus is on the applicant to document um, what the impact has been. And it also gives FDA the authority that after a certain amount of time, or even before that period of time, yeah. if we have science that suggests that something is dangerous to public health, or the continuum has shifted, where the balance is now outweighed with risk to youth, we can then um, rescind that um, and uh, remove the product from the marketplace in a way that will protect public health. Okay, that's, that's encouraging. Um, so earlier in the conversation, you mentioned one of your regulatory priorities was going to be uh, to propose a rule where you're decreasing the content of nicotine in tobacco products. And uh, it's unclear to me whether that uh, standard that you're proposing will apply to tobacco products generally, or is it to a, a specific uh, class of tobacco products? And also, it's kind of a unique idea. It's not the sort of thing that, um, you know, that members of this audience might have been thinking about in the past. And I wonder if you can just give us a little thumbnail on what's the rationale for decreasing nicotine content? What effect should we expect? Yeah, so we, we do know um, that um, cigarettes are responsible for the overwhelming burden of death and disease from tobacco product use. We've got about 480,000 Americans that are dying every year um, from smoking attributable um, uh, uh, diseases. And for everyone that's, that's dying, another 30 are living um, with a smoking attributable disease. And so there's certainly a, a strong burden and, and when you look at what the underlying drivers of that is, it's, it's the nicotine is the highly addictive agent. Um, it's certainly not the agent that's causing um, the, the, the toxicity of, of use mm -hmm. of the product, but it's the primary addictive agent. And so for many years, in terms of the tobacco prevention control community, there's been discussions about how could you um, uh, get at um, reducing the addictiveness of these products, which in turn would reduce dependency um, uh, and addiction to the, the broader population. And so one strategy that's been called an end game strategy um, since the mid nineties, it was initially proposed um, was reducing the amount of nicotine in, in cigarettes and in capping the maximum amount since that is the primary uh, addictive drug that is included um, in the products. Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion and research over the years, um, including a lot of discussions around points you've already made around, you know, what would be the intended effect if you did reduce um, the nicotine in cigarettes, would people quit? Would they transition to other products? Would they compensate um, and, and smoke right. more um, over a certain period of time? And, and what are those implications for disparate populations, including those with, with behavioral health conditions or substance use disorders? Um, and we've started to get a bolus of science that really demonstrates that a policy like this could be very effective and that if implemented in a certain way, um, the impact could be realized um, quickly um, and with limited adverse effects. Um, that said, um, we still follow a rulemaking process. And so right now, FDA has said that we intend to uh, propose a rule. Um, and so there's no proposed rule out yet. 
Um, but at that point is where we'll have the opportunity to give feedback from folks around a lot of these points are, you know, should this only focus on cigarettes? Should it only focus on uncombustible products more generally? Should other products be included? What's the science underlying potential adverse effects, including potential compensation on more illicit trade? And, and those are the types of discussions that we like to address um, uh, in the rulemaking process to ensure that we're receiving feedback from everyone. Um, so definitely a, a policy that the existing science suggests could have a very profound impact, um, but we do wanna make sure that we hear from all corners um, to make sure we've considered all those aspects um, as the rulemaking process continues moving forward. I recognize that you still have a lot of people to hear from and the science at this point is still developing and it's been focused on cigarettes for good reasons, but to your knowledge, is there an affirmative rationale not to include other tobacco products outside of the combustible cigarette? So I will say that, that nothing's off the table. Um, and we certainly look to the science to guide us. And when it comes time to um, uh, comment on the proposed rule, we're really looking for people to provide that science, mm -hmm. um, to give the evidence either way um, in terms of, of including other products would not be detrimental or could be detrimental because of, of X, Y, Z. And so we're certainly open to reviewing the preponderance of the science, but um, we really look to the research community, the public um, to, to help ensure that we've um, seen everything as a part of that public comment period. And we have no, no preconceived um, decisions on any of these. And we certainly look to the process for um, uh, uh, panning out um, once we've heard feedback from everyone um, prior to moving forward in the next step in the process. I have to say this conversation has really been very informative for me. Um, and I, I certainly appreciate the, the generosity uh, of time and insight. And uh, I feel much more uh, prepared to be an active part of the process. Um, I'm just wondering if you had advice for the typical chest member, folks in the audience, how can we be more engaged? How do you see us being engaged on an individual level? How do you see us being engaged on an organizational level? How can CHEST be more useful uh, to the public health conversation uh, as an organization? Yeah, so I know it's cliche to say that it takes a village, but it really does, uh, particularly <laughs> when it comes down to, to um, uh, the, the work that the Center for Tobacco Products is doing. And that said, uh, I, I know that um, clinicians have been a, a very key lever, um, in addition to, to researchers, um, as well as other public health professionals in terms of informing the work we do and being engaged. Um, that said, I think there's a lot that can be done. Um, and, and the first is, is participating in rulemaking. We've had a lot of discussion around these comment periods, and I can't reinforce enough the importance of making your voice heard. We, re we review every single comment that comes in, and that really helps um, our efforts to improve public health in the U.S. By, by submitting those comments on the regulations and also guidances and, and other things that go into regulations.gov. And so I can't can't stress enough, whether it's at the individual level or an organization level, um, formally submitting comments during rulemaking is very beneficial to us. Um, I also think it's important for folks to, to um, consider reporting tobacco-related concerns. Um, you can report tobacco-related health, quality pro uh, problems, any adverse experience online. Um, we do have a safety portal. Um, it's safetyreporting.hhs.gov. Uh, um, and that's a really um, ideal way for us to hear about any adverse events that may be occurring um, so that we can put a pulse on it. Um, it's also useful in these circumstances um, if there's a specific adverse effects associated with an individual product 
product or a product class, and then we can investigate it further. And so that's a first line of defense for us to be informed about things that may be happening on, on the ground. Um, I also think it's critical that folks leverage FDA's ongoing education efforts, particularly around um, a cessation um, and also um, youth access and use. Um, I think that the boots on the ground um, are a critical component of our ongoing work um, to ensure that, that people have the resources um, that they need to understand the continuum of risk, but also to importantly have access to cessation resources, whether that be um, behavioral health counseling or nicotine replacement therapy so that we can reduce tobacco-related disease and death, um, and also being very engaged in terms of youth prevention. Um, we do have a variety of different education resources through our campaigns. The Real Cause campaign is youth-focused, and we also recently had a, a campaign um, a focused on American Indian and Alaska Natives, um, and uh, those campaigns have a variety of different resources, whether it be digital or print, um, and so um, having folks from CHEST um, leverage those materials, get them into the hands of the people who will benefit them, and continue um, to promote those resources in a way that's meaningful is, is absolutely um, stellar. And then finally, I just say continuing to collect data to inform efforts. I know a lot of chess members are also involved in research, um, and we, we would not um, uh, be where we are if we didn't have a strong um, a regulatory science community. Um, FDA funds um, many entities, but we also look to the broader research community to make sure that the, the research they conduct and the data they have um, are able to, to um, help inform our regulatory efforts. And so please continue to conduct the robust research, um, publish the information as soon as possible um, uh, with the CTP vision in your mind of, of making tobacco-related disease and death a part of America's past and, and not America's future. Uh, that's fantastic. These are certainly uh, a, a comprehensive set of very practical and uh, really doable recommendations for us as individuals, but also as an organization. Um, uh, our guarantee to you is that I, I can make sure that the Tobacco and Vaping Work Group and the Health Policy and Advocacy Committee uh, focus their attention on, on some of the recommendations that you just made and that we disseminate a lot of this information to the membership. Um, I, those are all the questions I have for you. I really felt like this conversation was really very enlightening. I definitely appreciate all the time and uh, investment you've made uh, in, in making the regulatory process work on behalf of the public's health. So thank you, Dr. King. Thank you for your time and for your efforts. I look forward to working with you uh, hand in glove in the future. Thanks so much. I appreciate the time and, and look forward to working with you all moving forward. Keep up the good work. Take care. Thanks.